Hello, and welcome to another episode of Family Law and Lattes. This podcast is for family law professionals in England and Wales looking for straightforward, helpful tips or toolkits to tackle all aspects of family law. Basically, something you can listen to for half an hour whilst you're enjoying your cup of coffee. My name is Melanie Bathia-Samuel, and today I'm joined by Emma Spruce. Emma is a family law barrister at Four Paper Buildings in London. She has experience across the spectrum of family law, representing clients at all levels, including the High Court. Emma is regularly instructed in both private and public children law and has assisted clients in cases of complex issues such as allegations of domestic abuse, internal and international relocation, implacable hostility and alienation. She also has experience of representing clients in cases of varied jurisdictional issues and in defending applications for divorce. Today, Emma will be briefing me on the recent Court of Appeal case of RE-HN and others, and the potential to redefine the way in which the family court approaches domestic abuse. Hello, Emma. Welcome to Family Law and Lattes. Thank you for agreeing to come and be on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to um, be part of this podcast world that I am very much a listener of, but not yet um, a speaker on. So thank you. Very, very excited to be here. It's it's kind of um, very exciting. I love it. I think it's great. It's just so weird. It's not like what we're used to. We're used to doing webinars and we're used to kind of the visual and just the chatting stuff I find is unsettling, but so much fun. I'm very used to webinars at this juncture. I think we are Zoomed webinared out and I'm happy that there's a sense of of planning for seeing people in person at some point but there's still a place for in-person podcasts because um they are I think part of our world now and um, a great way of sharing information definitely today we're talking about PD12J and the Court of Appeal case which came out last week the week before yeah so it was the the judgment was delivered mm-hmm. um, two Mondays ago I think or Tuesday about two weeks ago now Mm-hmm. Um, after it, a three-day hearing in January. And um, tell me a little bit about the background and your involvement. Um, well, the the case is called RE-HN. Um, it is four conjoined appeals um, that were all heard, um, I think all heard um, by uh, circuit judges at first instance. Um, and... The reason that it sort of developed the sort of synonym of uh, the PD12J Court of Appeal judgment is because it focuses very much um, on the substance of those appeals, but moreover on what um, the experiences are for um, both victims of domestic abuse in the family court, um, alleged victims of domestic abuse in the family court, I should say, and um, respondents to those mm-hmm. allegations. Um, and the the sense, I think, that, that given the amount of resource that um, these types of cases take up in the family court, and the, 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 and, and the the sense um, I think from from many aspects of um, the profession um, and indeed um, lay clients that the system is failing um, those victims and indeed respondents and obviously um, more fundamentally the children that the court's concerned with. Um, so the the case itself is dealing with those four 
um, appeals and the sort of specific problems that, that came about in those. Um, but it was also an invitation to the Court of Appeal um, to consider how PD12J works, how the procedure works, well, that, that is the procedure, um, and and indeed um, uh, to, to hear from not only the advocates um, in the, the four conjoined appeals, but through um, various interveners, um, one of which I um, was um, very privileged to represent. Um, we uh, was part of a team um, that represented uh, the women's charity, so we represented Women's Aid, um, Women's Aid Wales, Rape Crisis, um, and Rights of Women. Um, so mm-hmm. four fabulous charities representing um, and, and having sort of on-the-ground experience of those women um, and victims of um, of domestic abuse that feel that the system let them down when they had their cases in the family court. Um, so that's broadly what the appeal was about. And I think that the anticipation of the judgment was something that was very much widespread across the family law bar and the the, the, the profession in general. We were, yeah, were definitely. talking between, I'm sure you would agree, yeah. we were talking about waiting for this judgment because we knew it was going to come and what changes it was going to make. We, I, I think perhaps there was an anticipation that it would be more wholesale than it, it in fact appears to be. But I'm mm. sure we will discuss that. But you, you, did you did you agree with that, with that sentiment that everybody was waiting on tenterhooks for the result? So many people were saying to me, we won't discuss fact-finding hearings until this comes out. Or we won't look at Scott schedules until it's, it's all going to change when this yeah. court of appeal judgment yeah. comes down. And I remember thinking, are you sure? I mean, that yeah. seems like a pretty kind of, you're, you're really saying the system's failed if you're saying that everything has to change. Mm-hmm. Um, well, so, and so yeah. when the judgment came down, it was like, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I, I mean, we probably go into that in, in due course, but it, I think that is right, that there was certainly a feeling in February and March that we didn't know if we were coming or going, making directions mm. in cases where um, we're dealing with allegations. But I think, I think one thing that... Um, uh, is an indicative of how widespread or how impactful this judgment um, was going to be is the reference in the judgment. And um, I think this was, um, from memory, um, a submission from Kafkas, one of the interveners. Um, but the submission uh, as to how widespread um, the, the, pro- the problem of domestic abuse is in the family court, and that set out paragraph three of the the judgment where it says that effectively 22,000 cases across England and Wales each year, taking uh, 2019 and 2020 as an example, involve allegations of domestic abuse. That's um, ridiculous. And number. when you consider really how mm. long uh, such um, proceedings, uh, on how much resource such proceedings would, would take in an individual basis, that's a, a huge chunk. Of, yeah. the, of the court's time but the reason that it's so important really is because we're talking about um the impact of a long-term contact order on a child it, given our new understanding really that and I'm, I'm, I you know something that certainly I think we're, we're continuing to work on making sure everybody understands that just because parents are no longer together, it doesn't mean that allegations of domestic abuse are necessarily irrelevant. 
um, because it's understood, I think, now that um, that dynamic of of a harmful relationship impacts children long after separation and through any contact order that the court's likely to make. So It seems somewhat ridiculous that we had to wait to have Court of Appeal say, hmm, this is still pertinent, when those on the ground know that it is incredibly relevant to what decisions you're making and what's ongoing, but hey. Quite, and, and I think what's clear is that there's only, you know, so much even the Court of Appeal can do. Sure. They're not legislators, and no. um, they can only... And sort of re reconsider um, what 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 um, uh, interpretation of the the, the legislation mm-hmm. uh, will assist um, practitioners on the ground um, as far insofar as um, it can do so. And I think that message was becoming clear during the hearing as um, lots of submissions were made in terms of offering resolutions to the court about how, for example we might deal with um, the first stages of hearings in um, cases where allegations of domestic abuse are made. Um, and that, that certainly was one of the, the features. How, do you, how does the court approach that first stage when, I, for example, a mother says, um, I'm refusing uh, the contact that the father seeks because I was subjected to domestic abuse for a, a series of years and these are all the things that happened to me. How does the court approach that at the first mm-hmm. hearing? And there was lots of discussions about ideas to deal with it better than the, than we currently are. And uh, were those ideas taken on board or was it very much a kind of you will need to present this in a different way? Well, I, I think certainly they were taken on board. They're discussed in the judgment to, to that extent. I think one of the, the subheadings is the use of Scott schedules, um, mm. which is what we know to be um, the, uh, the the sort of standard format for setting out um, allegations so that um, really everybody knows where they stand. And, and it's understood why those that, that procedure came about. But what I think was broadly agreed across all of the parties, interestingly, was that they don't serve a purpose in the context of controlling and coercive behaviour, which I think is the absolute takeaway from this judgment. If it, if it doesn't provide a wholesale change for how we approach, approach the procedure, it does very much say the court needs to understand the very, very harmful effects of coercive and controlling behaviour. Mm. Um, and in order to understand the harmful effects, you have to understand it. And Scott schedules don't allow the court to understand yeah. it because, uh, and you're shaking your head because you, you will have dealt with this, I'm sure, Melanie. Yes, many times. Where, yeah, where you're saying, um, uh, you know, how on earth could you set out in, in you know six allegations um mm-hmm. a pattern of coercive control and behavior because taken alone one of those incidents um can sound ridiculous to yeah. to an opponent to a court if you say um well on x date um he uh that you know that the father hid my car keys from me yeah sounds well how could that ever be uh, you know ever relevant to the child well 
that that's control and if you take yeah. that within if it's done purposefully obviously and if you take that within um uh, the the context of a dynamic in the relationship that that's going to be harmful for a child until that person is able to address recognize and and perhaps seek help for their um for their issues in the way that they deal with a person um and 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 I think that that for me is going to be helpful and I'll leave it at, at that in terms of um where where we are because it is it's it's wholly frustrating when when you're trying to as an advocate explain to the court the nexus between coercive and controlling behavior and and, a, and harm to a child which of course is what pd12j is concerned with um so the fact that the court says for example um that um coercive and controlling behavior is, is the thing that you have to understand before you can understand any other allegations of domestic abuse is is a huge turning point I think yeah. for, for us and and it gives us that in conjunction with um the the judgment that was handed down and um, just before the the hearing um the, the court of appeal hearing um FN I think are, are really really helpful um steps forward for for victims of domestic abuse as, as we understand it do you think the court is now going to be looking at coercive controlling behavior as a first step and then making a decision as to whether there should even be a Scott schedule or whether a decision has to, you know, a, a decision has to be made by the court on, on the general behavior rather than um, a specific incident? Yeah, exactly. So the the way that the the I sort of left the, the the answer to the first question about Scott schedules in the open, there was there was an agreement certainly that Scott schedules um, are not useful in the context of coercive controlling behaviour, but they do um, on the court of appeal in the court of appeals judgment serve a um, utility in respect of other types of allegations, mm. which I tend to agree with, um, but. Um, I think what, what, so, so on that basis, they say there there continues to be a place for a Scott schedule. There does not continue to be a place for limiting the the amount of allegations you put in a Scott schedule. Um, and I would say that it seems to me that the court is saying that um, where a person says I, I was subject to con- controlling coercive behaviour, um, then you are to file a witness statement in conjunction with your Scott schedule where you explain your lived experience. Your client obviously will explain their lived experience, how it, how the impact of their partner um, or what the impact of their partner's behavior had on them. And indeed how that will in in turn impact the child arrangements, which this judgment keeps coming back to. We have to be concerned with the impact on, on the court's order um, in in the uh, in the end um and and certainly um the court says at paragraph 51 that it agrees that 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 the court in the first instance needs to establish um whether there is evidence that there was an abusive pattern of coercive and controlling behavior okay. so um and that was picked up indeed from the submissions that my team made on behalf of the, the women's charities um, mm-hmm. was a very forceful submission that my um, 
learned leader made in respect of understanding that as an issue and then that in itself is a huge step forward because the, the court is saying actually it's not just although we've been talking about it for ages it's not just physical domestic abuse it's actually a pattern over a period of time which can be very um, low-key and invasive and actually completely destroying for a person. Um, if, as you pointed out, things get hidden or comments being made or um, constant abuse, verbal abuse, uh, you know, all that is, yeah, one-off incident is nothing but a whole pattern which has been going on for years, which the children have experience of yeah. as um, listening parties is, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a huge step forward. Exactly. And and you know as well as I do that it, it's it's not like people haven't understood that before. Mm-hmm. But when it's in black and white in a court of appeal judgment with the president, no less, of the family court delivering at that judgment, referring to that in a court setting and saying there's no way out, this yeah. is what the court says when, you know, this is how we have to approach allegations of coercive controlling behavior that's incredibly helpful it's so much easier than trying to you know start from the beginning and explain to um a, a bench or a judiciary that or the judiciary that um this is actually harmful behavior and, and it's not something to be quaffed at um what about fact-finding hearings? Because we've, we've talked about Scott schedules yeah. and that was the other thing that everybody was going on about. Oh, well, how would it affect fact-finding hearings? I'm assuming those are still going to carry on or, or are we being told we need to limit those? I mean, what, what has been Certainly what not. said about them? Certainly not. I don't think there is that anything should be read into um, the, they're not no longer being fact-finding hearings. There, there is... Uh, um, a very clear message. I think that um, fact finding here, fact finding hearings should be heard when it's necessary to do so. Um, mm-hmm. Which is the wording in PD twelve J. From on the face of it, PD twelve J is not yet um, changing. Um, there is guidance in this um, in this uh, uh, judgment as to how the court can approach deciding whether a fact finding is necessary. Um, and obviously there there will need to be um, consideration as to proportionality. Um, and again, the basis of the assessment of risk um, to, to, to child arrangements in the future, um, there is quite a nice summary at paragraph 38 as to what the court considers, um, at 37, that the court should consider when, when doing so, uh, when making the decision as to a fact-finding hearing. Um but but certainly there will continue to be a place for fact-finding hearings when um, the, the 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 applicant or the the mother's allegations in most instances appear to be having a material impact on contact in the long run, um, and and that's certainly a, 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 an argument that there's two sides to because on in the first instance of course the mother will be saying well if if contact in the the long term is going to be impacted by the allegations that I make then certainly in the interim it shouldn't be uh, the child shouldn't be having contact but representing a father who doesn't agree that any of the allegations um have any truth in them then Mm -hmm. they're often faced in uh, with a position that you know contact shouldn't happen um until those allegations are determined Sure. And people have mixed experiences about this. There are certainly um, uh, 
different differing views on where interim contact comes into place and and I know that the uh, that the contents of the harm report which is one of the um, government reports that that, that that has been commissioned um, in in so dealing with PD12J cases is to consider the sort of pro-contact culture as they sure. call it so should for example um contact take place as long as the risk can be mitigated in a supervised setting until the to, until the allegations are determined um well the research would suggest that it shouldn't because even that contact can be harmful in certain um in certain settings um but the uh, the, the court of appeal judgment doesn't go as far as determining um, or giving an indication in that sense. Um, but there is an indication that the harm report recommendation should be implemented. So where we yes, are between those... Somewhat two, confusing exactly. then. Exactly. And then I think that's another message within the within the um, Court of Appeal judgment. You know, as I said earlier, there is always going to be a limit as to how far they can take things. But on the other hand, I think some aspects have been left open for us to... Um, okay. expect more to be said about so I see that as a positive as well because I think that there is a clear indication that it's a good positive step in the first instance but there's also a, a conversation that started as a result of um, this and, and who knows whether there, there will be um, you know further um, discussion if any of the the first instance um, uh, or the, the, the court of appeal uh, substantive appeals are going to be appealed again up to the Supreme Court. Perhaps there will be more discussion in that juncture. I, I don't know what the outcome will be there. So do we think what the Court of Appeal is saying is PD PD12J for the moment is fit for purpose, but we just need to have some more guidance? Or have they been very quiet on it and they're just hoping that there will be further reviews, discussions, which will lead to changes? I think the answer is somewhere in the middle of those two things. I think oh. for purposes of the judgment, it, it's an interpretation of PD12J, but there is reference to a, a review. Um, if the, in, And indeed, when they're talking um, about uh, some of the suggestions that CAFCAS as an intervener made, um, they, they say the court of appeals say well um, that those suggestions may be considered when those charged with, with, with reviewing PD12J. But then on the other hand, they simply provide guidance for interpreting um, the, the the practice direction in and of itself. So um, I'd say to be clear, as it stands, PD12J is very much alive and kicking as we as we know as we know it. The benefit of this judgment is that we can uh, refer again to, to this on top of PD12J in looking at those specific issues. For example, how Scott schedules should be um, formulated in conjunction with witness statements and um, not seeking to um, reduce the amount of um, allegations that a person makes because that's not going to be um, a, an accurate depiction of what's happened to that person. So some flexibility is being given to practitioners or uh, people that are making these applications to kind of have, to allow the court to make decisions that fit best individual case. Yeah, exactly. I think so. W within, what, within the remit of PD 
12J, which is this is what it is, but we're giving you as much flexibility as possible to do what you think is best for these specific cases. And the way it's open, maybe there's going to be more of a review. Maybe they're actually they're opening it up to having some some review done. Yeah, I think the the real difficulty, of course, is that while that's it's all going to be very um, interesting for um, represented parties to argue about what this judgment does to their particular case. We know that so many parties are unrepresented, of course, and um, and it will be a matter for the for the judiciary to to uh, and to look in detail and understand in detail what one person person is saying. Um, and that task cannot be underestimated as to its difficulty because yeah. um, one thing that certainly I understood in better detail, and it doesn't come across necessarily through the judgment, um, and I understood it through my clients for this hearing, is the impact that trauma has on victims mm. of abuse and their ability to really relay in detailed terms as we need them to yeah. in, in, in a court setting um, what happened to them and why, um, uh, and the inconsistencies that can arise as a result of, of a very complex dynamic, usually, um, yeah. uh, between between parents of, you know, it, the, the fact is this is an issue um, that, that transcends all aspects of society, yeah. realistically, because nobody is, is immune from domestic abuse. Hmm, that's, I guess, providing some freedom and some help, but at the same time, it seems to be putting a lot of responsibility on the judiciary to be making these decisions, particularly when we consider how many of these cases are unrepresented, litigants in person turning up at court, not being able to articulate their cases properly, or not knowing how to do so for various reasons, whether it is because they don't know how to access justice, whether it's because they, as you say, are going through huge trauma that they cannot express. And then the judiciary is having to make those decisions with with less, I guess, support, not support, but less um, clear guidance, because now it's a lot more open to them. Yeah, exactly. It's hugely difficult. And when we talked about you know, there were there were suggestions in the hearing as to how that process could be streamlined, as to whether or not there can be, um, I think, a submission um, from Professor Delahunty QC. I think was that there could be a, a process akin to um, the uh, a checklist that the police would mm. give um, victims when they um, are giving statements. Perhaps that could be part of um, a a, respond, a respondent mother or an applicant mother's um, a, a documents to the court to give a real idea of of where where he or she is and and whether indeed a C one A form is, isn't helpful at, at all yeah. in that respect. Um, but the the court what what wasn't what didn't get to grips with that, and I suspect that's because that's beyond. Um, the the capabilities of uh, of, sure. a, of a um, of a judiciary of the judiciary in the court of appeal, but interesting so, nonetheless. You know what could we what tools could we provide litigants in person to put their exactly. best step forward, and and I think we as practitioners 
um, are possibly better placed than than very senior judiciary to do that because we're more used to um, or, or sort of more accustomed at the moment with how things work on the ground. So, Definitely. I mean, I but also I experienced that with with clients, you know, trying to um, take a statement from them and work them through what what's happened with them, and it, a lot a lot of the time it's it's it is them coming to terms with what happened to them during the relationship. And and it is it is very difficult because you you often because you're putting pressure on them to get thoughts over to you get you know get what you need from them to be able to present this to the court you're focusing often on the wrong things you're often focusing on specific incidents and then you know the fact that there is this coercive controlling behavior in the background becomes an afterthought um but i was thinking also if you're trying to um provide information or guidance to litigants in person you know where are they going to find this information is there like a section 25 equivalent you know checklist somewhere that this is what the court considers this is what you need to be considering when you're getting your thoughts across and often there's a timing issue you know often you don't have the time to sit and properly think about this because it takes so long to go through things so there's a lot to be doing with this I, I think it I think that point's so true you know you miss things because we're focused on the case and, and, and mm. what we're used to and I think that comes back to a a big point in in the in the judgment and that's training training yes. of the judici- judiciary but also our clients certainly saying practitioners need training as well and mm-hmm. I, I that was something I, I you know had to, to to come to terms with I, I don't I, I've got some work to do to understand um you know how the intricacies of some types of abuse and mm-hmm. I think that that's an onus that we all should um, recognize and try to understand um so that we can both be sensitive to to those um issues when representing respondents to allegations but also to ensure that our clients case is put really thoroughly and accurately in in line with their experience I think that makes a lot of sense and I completely agree the lack of training for family law practitioners in addressing this is spectacular Um, and I think only if you work in legal aid practices or you had training in legal aid practices yeah. do you have any real kind of on-hand um tra- training to, to to even consider other ways of thinking about situations and how to address or or look at uh, what your client is telling you or as you say the respondents you know how to um help them how to explain things how to work their case it's yeah it's it's an interesting one and the, the lack of training in that I'm always shocked at when I speak to colleagues who just look at me completely blankly when I start mentioning things I'm like oh I hadn't thought about that or yeah. I didn't know about that yeah. or I think I think it's hugely important that you know and, and and who who is to do that training is another is another point because um it can't just be, in my view, as more senior practitioners. It's got to be specialised, um, specialised trainers of, 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 of with an understanding and a grounding in in what um, the impact of domestic abuse is yes. in terms of um, you know how that impacts proceedings and also the the sort of wide body of research which I came to terms with in in, in preparing for the case. Um, as to 
what how how children really are harmed when they're exposed both mm. to the, their, their parents' relationship in and uh, while the parents are together and, and afterwards through contact and through court. That's a, a huge point. You know, the proceedings in and of themselves are for lots of victims uh, another um, channel for abuse. But that's you know something that that's very hard to escape because. Um, unless it's exceedingly obvious, um, then and you know you're looking at perhaps making an application um, for a section ninety one four order, then you're going to have to engage with proceedings, and that's often yeah. a hugely traumatic experience in and of itself. I mean, we could go on about the impact <laughs> of these types of proceedings. Yeah. And that's the one thing I I, I, um, I thought about when you asked me to do this. I thought, God, how are we, we could literally talk all night, I'm sure, about it. Um, well, I've just been thinking about when you were talking about training, I was thinking, oh, well, I, I have friends that work in these charities and and at a policy level. Um, and we, we have conversations about this kind of in our time off when we get together uh, for fun. Um, and we have these long conversations and, you know, from the view of the policy, from the view of the law, from the view of, you know, on the ground working in shelters or, or working from the legal aid standpoint. And they're just, yeah, I'm just training. How could we train lawyers? What can we provide for them? What, what should we be looking at training them? It's yeah. Anyways, there's too much to go on. Um, if you had a couple of points to take away from this that you would want to really drive home as important takeaway points, what would they be? Well, I think I've probably covered the, the, the biggest one for me, and that's um, understanding coercive controlling behavior yeah. um, as the start and the end point of these allegations as, uh, um, as, as, uh, as a sort of gateway to um, the dynamic between the parties. Um, I think that that, if nothing else, is is worth um, really understanding, getting to grips with. Um, I, I think we haven't obviously touched on um, so far the, uh, the court's uh, approach to um, instances of or allegations of sexual abuse. Um, uh, but um, I, I, that's one of the aspects certainly I was disappointed with because there were some, some really interesting um, submissions um, it, during the hearing about, um, about, again, about the court's very outdated, well, given the instances in the specific substance appeals, um, the, but the, very, the court's very outdated approach to... Um, to allegations of sexual abuse. For example, one of the substantive appeals um, was um, uh, there was an allegation that a rape took place on, hol on holiday and the judge in that case considered that because the parties had been having, having consensual sex before and after the um, alleged incident, then it, it, it cast doubt on the possibility that um, the mother hadn't consented on that occasion. And that, to me, um, is is both shocking, but also um, a huge indication of mm. how far we've got to go before understanding yeah. um, that um, th th that type of allegation. Um, but 
but the the extent that the Court of Appeal went in re- respect of those allegations was to say that effectively it's not really helpful um, to um, apply labels to um, the, the different types of sexual abuse allegations because that, as I as I interpret the judgment, that fails to engage with the act itself. Um, uh, well, and, and indeed what um, it is alleged to have happened as opposed to whether it constitutes rape um, in a criminal sense. So I think that my, coming back to your question, um, I think, Melanie, my top tip, um, and I, of course I've got to say this, but I do think it, it, it is hugely important, um, is that there has seems to have been a mark set forward in our understanding or at least our ability to point to the judiciary's uh, the senior judiciary's understanding of what a coercive controlling um, relationship looks like and the fact that there's a nexus between that and harm to a child wow that's a positive step not necessarily everything we want to hear but definitely something um yeah something good to hear the judiciary yeah exactly saying yeah we we recognize this and we're we're taking note and everybody else further down the line should also be taking note yeah and i think of course we've got to be realistic about you know if if we were to be saying in every case where there was allegations of domestic abuse which my clients were saying because realistically, when allegations are made, then they're made for a reason. Um, the the concept of there being a fact-finding hearing in every case sends, I, I think, the judiciary into um, just a, a descent of panic because the the, the, the the system, as we know, is under huge pressure. But in my view, I don't think that that should be reason for for avoiding what is the reality of the situation like you know if it if it looks um if it is if it looks like an egg and it smells like an egg then it probably is and Mm -hmm. we need to deal with it because otherwise sooner or sooner rather than later those issues are going to crop up again and I think um a fact-finding hearing um in the first instance should assist with that of course there's always going to be issues and I and the court addresses this when there isn't sufficient evidence uh, to prove an allegation. It doesn't necessarily mean that the allegation didn't, that that, that, that didn't happen, but for the courts, yeah. from, from the victim's perspective, certainly, but it does from the court's perspective. So I think there's more to be said about um, what happens after a fact-finding judgment is given and um, the steps to be taken then. But as I say, I think more is to come. I do, and, and, I, and I'm excited um, to to see how um, the doc, this doctrine of law develops, because um, I think the statistic that we talked about earlier on makes that cause very clear. We could talk about this forever. We I think could. you and I we could be having another hour conversation about this, but I'm going to stop it here. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to um, come and speak to me about this, because reading it is all well and good, but actually having someone sit down and just go through it with the examples you've mentioned and the um, explanations of what's actually going on and what it means has been super helpful. So thank you so much for that. Thank you. I have. I'm so, um, I'm so surprised that I've still got a bit of coffee left in my cup, which is 
which shows how much I've been chatting away. Well, that was going to be my last question. It's like, what was that really gorgeous coffee you showed me at the beginning of this? What what are you drinking? What's your favorite coffee? Always a flat white. Um, And I'm, I have to say, I'm very lucky that my, um, that my fiance is very into making uh, coffee on the the fancy coffee machine we've got downstairs in our rather dilapidated um, house (laughs) at the moment. Um, And I, I think it's my, um, it's my very bad joke that um, he's the barista of the house and I'm the barrister who's who. Um, <laughs> I do love um, that. That's very good. There's even like a, I don't know if you can see, but there's even a, a leaf uh, sort of uh, shape in the froth. So he's, he's spent a lot of lockdown practicing his latte art. I was very impressed when you showed the the cup at the beginning. I'm like, oh, where did you go and get that? That looks really good. Yes, downstairs. It's great. It's kept me going through these these long hours of lockdown for sure. <laughs> I'm a coffee lover. Thank you so much, Emma, for explaining all this and for having a chat with me. And I will no doubt be coming back to pick your brain about something else later on in the line. So get ready. Thank you, Melanie. Thank you so much. And thank you for doing this. I love listening to to um, all of your work and I'll be staying tuned for some, some more material. Excellent. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Family Law and Lattes will continue next week. In the meantime, if you have any suggestions about the podcast or topics you'd like to hear discussed in the future, please send me a tweet at Melanie underscore Batayar, message me on Instagram at Melanie Batayar, or email me at familylawandlattes at gmail.com.